Let's turn together to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49, we'll read the first 16 verses of that chapter. Our text is the first part of the 16th verse. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from far. The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me, and said unto me, Thou art my servant. O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to, whom, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. That thou mayest say to the prisoners, go forth, to them that are in darkness, show yourselves, they shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all high places. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them. For he that hath mercy on them shall lead them, even by the springs of water shall he guide them. And I will make all my mountains a way, and my highways shall be exalted. Behold, these shall come from far, and lo, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinim. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth. And break forth into, into singing, O mountains. For the Lord hath comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. Can a woman forget her suckling child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget. Yet will I not forget thee, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. To that point we read the holy, inspired word of God. Our text is the first part of that 16th verse. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Beloved of God, in the first half of the prophecy of Isaiah... The prophet of God is prophesying to Israel 
before she goes into captivity and is telling her that she is about to go into captivity. The first half of Isaiah then is full of denouncements of Israel's sins, calls to repentance, declaring to her that the judgment of God will fall upon her for her sin. The second half of the prophecy of Isaiah comes to the Israelites who now are in captivity as has been prophesied in the first part of the book. And the second half of the prophecy of Isaiah now brings comfort to the broken-hearted, contrite, repentant Israelites who are in captivity. There are promises concerning their return from captivity and even a comfort that goes beyond that, looking all the way ahead to the first coming of Jesus Christ. The Messiah shall bring you the great comfort and even farther to the second coming of Jesus Christ and the comfort for God's church in the consummation of the kingdom. The second half of Isaiah in which our text is found, is one of the most glorious and comforting sections of all the Bible. And this, our text for this morning, has always been recognized by the church as one of the most marvelous, even out of that portion of this book. It is a word of comfort that is addressed to Zion, that is, to the church. To the church As a whole, organically speaking, all of God's own together in the body of Jesus Christ. And it is a word spoken, therefore, to each individual true child of God who makes up that church and who is repentant for his sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in the way of you and I coming this morning, humbled in a week of self-examination at our own sins, contrite, repentant, seeking the Savior. This word is for you, for you personally. Let's hear it this morning and see it also signified and sealed in the sacrament. Let's take it up under the theme graven upon the palms of God's hands. We'll notice first the necessary comfort, second the glorious picture, and third the sound basis. In Isaiah chapter 49, it seems that Israel cannot be comforted. The first part of this chapter has the prophet of God giving to Israel one of the grandest, most Glorious messages that could possibly be given to her. A message that ought to bring the greatest comfort to God's people. The first 13 verses that we read this morning of Isaiah 49 are all about the coming of the Messiah and the work that he will accomplish when he does come. Verse 1, the Messiah will come and will be called by Jehovah from the womb. Verse 2, He will come and will speak God's own words. Verse 3, he's going to magnify who God is before the face of God's people. Verse 5, the effect of his work is going to be that he calls Jacob back to God. 
verses 5 and 6, not only Jacob, but the Gentiles too will be brought in to the kingdom of God from afar. Verse 7, He is God's chosen one. He will in Himself be God's covenant amongst us. He's God and man together, close, united. And verses 10 through 12 show us that the Messiah will reveal to us the mercy of God and will bring to us the mercy of God. And the prophet is so full himself of this message that he's privileged to declare to the church that these first 13 verses of the chapter rise in this crescendo until you get to verse 13 and the prophet can't contain himself and he calls all the creation to sing about what he is declaring. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains. For the Lord hath comforted His people. He will have mercy upon His afflicted. Rejoice everything, everywhere, because the Messiah is coming and He's bringing the mercy of God. And the contrast couldn't be greater with the next verse, verse 14. Because instead of joining in the exaltation and the worship of heaven and earth and the mountains and the seas, we read this. But Zion said, no, 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 no. The Lord hath forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. It's almost as though she has had her, her fingers in her ears for the first 13 verses. Because the whole point of those verses is that God has not forsaken her. That he has not forgotten her. But she will not hear it. She will not embrace it. She is in the throes of despair, a kind of spiritual depression that holds her. She's been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, away from the promised land, from the temple, from the place where all of God's promises have been declared to her and have, to this point, come true for her. She's been severely chastised for her sins. She feels forgotten of God, that He has let her slip out of His mind, that He has no loving mind toward her any longer. She feels forsaken of the Lord, that He has turned His back upon her, that He's broken His covenant with her, that His promises fail now. They are not for her. She is so downtrodden that she's like Asaph in Psalm 77 who says, my soul refuses to be comforted. I wonder if there's anybody who is like that here this morning or watching on the internet. So that God's Word comes to you, His promises come to you, and you don't embrace them. It's not right, of course, 
to stop your ears to the Word and promises of God, but sometimes faith can be so weak, its fire can burn so dim that we hear them. And it's like they come here and then drop. It's not for me. Refuse to be comforted and feel forgotten and forsaken by God so that it's so hard to embrace what's coming to us as real and right and true for me. Perhaps, perhaps, child of God, you, like David, take a look into the vast reaches of the universe and see how massive this universe is and think about yourself and say, of course he wouldn't remember me. What, what am I in the middle of this vast universe? To even call me a speck of dust in this universe is really, it's really a ratio that's, that's too great. I'm, I'm less than a pinprick in this vast universe. And to think that this God who has made all things has some special care for me, that he thinks about me, that is, he's interested in my life, that, that he has a, a covenant with me, that he walks with me, has a relationship with me, that he knows me and has a care for my existence at all, that it's hard for me to grasp, to even make sense of. And then even on this planet, there's eight billion people on this planet. And I think that I, this tiny little person who means hardly anything on this planet would have some special place in the mind of God. No. I'm alone. I am forgotten by Him, overlooked by Him. Why wouldn't I be? Or perhaps you have a full sight of your own sinfulness Faithfully, you have examined yourself in this week gone by in preparation for the supper of our Lord, and you see your rebellions besides, and maybe it's the combination of these two things that I'm less than a speck of dust in this universe, and yet this tiny little less than a speck of dust is also rebellious against this God. And I'm regenerated, and I know better, and yet... Some of the thoughts that come through my mind, and some of them I even nurture, and I don't kill right away, some of the things that come out of my mouth. Maybe there was a time when he took thought of me, when he cared for me, but not now. How could it be that I am still so sinful after all this time? that He would not forsake me, that He would not forget me. I cannot be convinced that He would be mindful of me, that He would show mercy to me yet. Perhaps there are those who come who are swimming and have been swimming for some time in the deep waters of trials in their life. Maybe in combination with the other two things. 
And the thought of these trials that are upon me becomes so great that you wonder, I can't possibly be in the mind of God in a way that's loving. Has He not forsaken me? Is not my experience in this life evidence that He has forsaken me? Perhaps you are aware of the fact that something in your life is a direct chastisement for some sin in your life. And you know it beyond the shadow of a doubt. I know that this thing is happening is because He's chastening me for this way of sin in which I have been walking. Or perhaps not. Perhaps it's simply the fact that He is giving you trials in your life, that He's leading you through a particularly dark valley, as He does at times in His people's lives. Perhaps it's a trial that does not seem to go away. There is little prospect in front of you of it ever going away. And perhaps there is pain in your life that is there and it's still there and you wake up tomorrow and it's still there and you cry out to the Lord, take this away, but He doesn't take it away and there it still is and the burden that is upon you. Maybe there's pains of the body, of the soul, or of the mind that are so deep and so heavy. The child of God will not be convinced. No, He has forsaken me. He is not near to me. He has forgotten me. He has separated me from Himself and turned His back upon me. What other explanation could there be for this? Like the disciples in Mark chapter 4, there are times when the storms that are raging in our life are of such magnitude. It's like the waves are coming in to the boat and the boat is sinking farther and farther And you say to yourself, how can I stay afloat in the midst of this difficulty and struggle? And amid all the worries and cares and fears, you cry out to the Christ, but He's in the hinder part of the ship, asleep as though He does not care. And so you say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? He has forgotten me. His mind is on other things. He's forsaken me. He's turned His back upon me. Does he not see me in this? Does he not care? And he does nothing. And so the ears of the soul, it seems, are closed to the message of hope that is found in the Messiah and in the covenant of God. It's very striking that in Isaiah 49, God's response to his people's despair, sinful though it is, his response is not to rebuke them. Not now. As the good shepherd of his sheep, he's not going to break the bruised reed. He's not going to quench the smoking flax. As the good shepherd, he knows faithfully how to use his rod and his staff and when when a stern word is needed and when a soft word is needed. And at this time, the great distress of the people is not stiffness of heart. It's not rebellion. That's been broken. That hardness of heart, that that stiffness of lip has been broken by the words of the prophets now in conjunction with the captivity. God's people have been chastened. Now there is a contrite spirit, a humble spirit, and so he does not come with chiding words any longer, but he bends down to lift them up and to comfort them as he does to you, repentant sinner, this morning. 
who comes here broken by preparation, broken by a word of preparation, broken by the sight of your own need for grace still as ever, becoming contrite of heart. The message is not for those who remain in their pride, hard-hearted and stiff-necked, but those who come broken, contrite. And God has a word this morning to speak to you of his love, of his faithfulness. Behold, I have graven thee on the palms of my hand. It's an anthropomorphism, of course, that is, it's a kind of thing where God speaks of himself as though he has human characteristics and does so in order to get the point across to us. Of course, there are no literal physical hands that God has and no engravings upon the palms of those hands. It's an image. But because it's an image, that doesn't mean that that should be a disappointment to us or that that indicates that knowing that it's an image, it's, it's really less than what it otherwise would be. God uses anthropomorphisms in Scripture precisely because the reality is too great to describe any other way. The image is too tell us something that really cannot be told. And by His grace, through this image, we can gain a sense of this great reality being pictured. As we do so, there are four great comforts that God would have us derive from this picture. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. The first one, and the chief and main one, is that this image communicates to us permanent remembrance, God's permanent remembrance of His people. Zion is graven on the palms of God's hands. Zion is not graven upon the bottom of God's foot. Where she can't be seen and therefore remembered, but upon the palms of his hands, so that Zion is ever before his eyes, so that he sees her, remembers her, does not forget her. We still do this, don't we? Sometimes when you want to remember something, you'll write a note to yourself on the palm of your hand. Why do you do that? Because our hands are always in front of our eyes. We see the palms of our hands. And so, we remember and we don't forget. That's what the text is saying to us. And notice that God says Zion is graven upon the palms, plural, of my hands, plural. It may be, of course, that we write something on one palm, on one of our hands, but then we have to use that hand to carry something or whatever it is. And so it's not in front of our eyes and we forget. But God says, I've not only engraven you on one of the palms of my hands, but both. So that you are always before me. So that I can't forget you. 
always in my mind. But even more, in the way of permanent remembrance. When we write something on the palm of our hands, in order to remember it, we write it in ink. But ink can fade away. We wash the dishes, and the ink comes off. We take a shower, the ink comes off. Or we, we have to do some work or something, and it, and it gets rubbed off, but not here. It doesn't say, behold, I have written thee upon the palms of my hands, but behold, I have graven thee. I have engraved thee on the palms of my hands. It's the word that's used throughout the Old Testament to refer to etching in stone. When God wrote the Ten Commandments, He wrote them on those two tablets, tablets of stone with His finger etching graving those commandments into those two tables to indicate the permanence of those commands. And that's the idea here too. As though with his finger he engraves Zion into his hands. The scars are ever there. And then this hand so that they are ever before him. Nothing can wash them off. They will never fade. They will always be before his eyes and therefore in his remembrance. Permanent remembrance. He cannot forget his people. Second, the image intends to communicate the protection of God for his people. We are in the palms of his hands. Zion is engraved in the palms. What do you do with the palms of your hands? If there's a little baby bird that has fallen out of its nest and its mother has gone on thinking that the baby bird is gone or, or dead. You pick it up and you hold it in the palms of your hands and there's a certain tenderness to that as that little baby bird is in the, in the middle of your hands and at the same time there is this notion of protection. These, these hands are around this little bird protecting it and that's the idea here too that God's people and the tenderness of his love for them are in the palms of his hands and his mighty, mighty, mighty strong hands and arms are around them, protecting them, keeping them. And no one is able to pluck them out of our Father's hands. He does not forsake them. Third, This image illustrates the truth that all of the purposes of God are for His people. A permanent remembrance of His people. The sovereign protection of His people. His purposes are all for His people. The hands are the instruments of action, right? The purpose of the mind is carried out then by the hands. And these hands in the text are God's hands. They are the instrument of God's sovereign purposes. These are the hands that have formed man himself and have carried out God's decree. They are the instrument of providence. And right in the palms of God's sovereign providence is Zion. So that the point is that those hands and all that they do, they're, they're doing what is for the good of Zion. 
They're carrying out what they're carrying out for Zion who is engraved in the palms of those hands. All things in this world, all things in this life are working for the good of His people. Even that trial that has you in such despair, even that struggle in your life, even that battle where you have cried out to God, take this away from me, and He doesn't, so that you wonder if He remembers you. Oh, He remembers you. This too is working in His sovereign purpose. bring you to himself. And yes, he knows exactly how to work in your life for your good. Because he knows you so perfectly better than you know yourself. And that's the fourth thing. How personal this illustration is. Permanent remembrance protection. The purposes of God are for us. For us so personally. As I've been speaking about Zion and about the church and about you being engraved in the palms of God's hands, what kind of picture has come to your mind? What, what have you pictured being etched there in the palm of His hand? Did you picture the word Zion or, or the word church being engraved in the palm or your name your name being graven in the palm of God's hands, and yet that isn't even personal enough. The text does not say he has Zion's name graven there, or the church's name graven there, or even your name graven there, but you, Zion herself, not just her name, but her, everything about her, a comprehensive knowledge of her is engraven. He knows you. Everything about you is graven there. Everything that you are, your strengths, your weaknesses, your gifts, your frailties, your temptations, your tendencies, your hurts, your joys, your failures, your triumphs, your thoughts that everybody else knows, your thoughts that nobody but you know upon this planet. Your depravity, your sin, your good works, your life in Jesus Christ. What makes you weep in the night? What makes you sing in the night? All that you are is graven there. Everything you've experienced is graven there. All that we are is constantly before his mind so that when he carries out his sovereign purposes, he does it knowing us exactly and knowing how to arrange our life exactly the way to conform us to the image of Jesus, to bring us to Himself more and more and to prepare us for the place that He has for us in glory. He knows how to take care of us. He has not forsaken. He has not forgotten. And will you see, true child of God, That it is not up to you to ensure that your name is etched there. Behold, I have graven thee. I have placed thee ever to be before my mind. Your place there is not dependent upon you. You don't commend yourself to me so that then I etch your name there. I have done it, and I have done it, 
a completed action. I have graven thee in eternity already. It's been done in sovereign election. He's graven his people upon the palms of his hands. And if he's done this, do you really think that he's going to turn against his own eternal decree and forsake the objects of his electing love and turn his back upon them and forsake them? I have plucked you as a brand out of the fire, chosen you out of the common race of humanity. I'm not going to forget you. I'm not going to forsake you. And besides, I have ensured that you have the right to be there in the palms of my hands and the cross of my own son. The image, the illustration is an anthropomorphism, as we said. There are no literal hands and literal palms in which Zion is engraved. Or are there? Take a look at the palms of the hands of God-made flesh. What is etched there? But the wounds of the Messiah of God prophesied in the first 13 verses of this chapter. And are you not the reason for those wounds in the palms of his hands, so that to look at those wounds is to look at you and to remember you for whom he has taken them, the one whose actual physical engraved hands are ever opened before the face of his father and upon which his father gazes, our hands upon which he gazes to the permanent remembrance of his people, God looks at those hands and sees Zion etched there. His children redeemed in the blood of the spotless lamb. These are the graven hands of the one whose body was broken, whose blood was shed to bear your sins and mine once and for all. These are the graven hands of the one who cried out forsaken of God, as it felt to him forgotten of God so that you and I, poor sinners though we are, might never be forsaken and forgotten by him. Will you really refuse to be comforted, church? What more can he say? If the word in your hearing does not fully alone convince you, then may the seeing and the tasting and the touching. As the sacrament signifies and seals that word, be the power to you in the hands of the Holy Spirit. How tender our God is to us. Do you see what he's doing, our God, in this text? And what he's doing here upon this table? Look at the first word again. Behold, behold, I have graven thee. Look, 
See for yourself, I have graven thee. So that God is presented in the text, as it were, unfolding his arms and showing you the open palms and saying, look, behold, see it. Will you remain unconvinced? See for yourself, there you are, graven in the palms of my two hands. Well, then you see him doing this in the supper of the Lord this morning. And the broken bread and the poured out wine. The Lord unfolds for you the hands of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And He says, look. Look at the scars that He bore for you. That's you. I think of you when I see it. Behold it yourself. You are ever before me in my mind. I will not forsake you. I will not forget you. And by grace, believe and sing. Amen. Father, strengthen our faith. And strengthen it now by this holy meal, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.